This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. You're listening to a Postocalypse Career Special, Academia and the Two-Body Problem. Hi, you're listening to Postocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team from King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world, and we'll be sharing the highs and lows of postgrad study. Here at Postocalypse Podcast, we asked the Twitterverse to describe the postocalypse in their own words. Originally coined to describe the economic crunch that hit postdocs in the post-2008 recession years due to the high numbers of postdocs and the relatively low numbers of lectureships, the meaning of the so-called postocalypse seems to have expanded to encompass all sorts of anxieties and pressures that go hand in hand with academic careers. People were providing both economic and emotional reasons for leaving academia. Because a lot of people start their postgrad career aiming to get their dream job in academia, in this next instalment of our career sessions, we're going to interview a true power couple about their experiences staying in academia. My name is Madeleine Iafrate, and I will be your host for this episode. And today I'm joined by not one, but two very special guests, Drs. Samantha Terry and Daniel Burnham. Sam is a lecturer in radiobiology and has a research lab which investigates how to make radioactive molecules damage and kill cancer cells more effectively than they currently do. She also loves all things public engagement and recently won an award from the Royal Society of Biology, recognising her leadership in this sphere. Daniel is a postdoctoral fellow at the Crick, formerly CRUK London Research Institute, and has previously worked in Seattle, the Netherlands and St Andrews, where he did his PhD in physics. His fascination lies in understanding the fundamentals of genome duplication and currently researches DNA replication within a single molecule imaging of genome duplication lab. Specifically, he uses novel microscopy to investigate the DNA unwinding mechanism of the eukaryotic replicative helicase. How this molecular machine unwinds two meters of DNA in each cell before duplication is not fully understood. The discoveries they have made are crucial to understanding genome instability and consequently human disease. My name is Madeleine Iafrate, and I will be your host for this episode, and today I'm joined by not one, but two very special guests, Drs. Samantha Terry and Daniel Burnham. Welcome, Daniel and Sam. How are you doing? Hi, good, thanks. Yeah, not bad. (laughs) Perfect. Sam and Daniel are also married to each other, so my first question has to be, is there an agreement on how much you talk about work at home? Uh, that's a touchy subject. (laughs) Um, so there isn't an official agreement, I wouldn't say. Um, we used to talk about work all the time, um, especially PhD time because we met during our PhDs. Um, and we vowed never ever to work together. And we've sort of made that bit work. We don't have any joint publications yet. Yet. It's about to change. Is it? Okay. Well, there's no, there's no hard and fast agreement of whether we can talk about work. It kind of becomes obvious if someone doesn't want to talk about work. So you just Perfect. kind of talk about something else instead. So, Daniel, your work is on, um, like, novel microscopy slash AFM, or do you use just optical? Uh, so I use something called magnetic, magnetic tweezers, largely. But it's all kind of around the same thing of pulse spectroscopy. So how have you managed to, um, to manoeuvre it so that you have your research now overlaps because that's quite interesting well so I guess this originally started because Dan is a physicist and I'm a biologist and well I need to try and understand a lot of physics in my work um, and had to learn about it during my PhD as well and so naturally we started chatting about things Dan 
you have now moved more into the biological field, but from a physics perspective. Is yeah. that wrong? Yeah, so one of the techniques we're pushing at the moment is doing super resolution imaging of DNA. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when Sam was doing a PhD, I remembered seeing something in a thesis that interested me, and I never got an answer to it because no one really knew the answer, it turned out. But now, because we can image this DNA in this particular way, we can start to try and answer that question. So when, I, when, I, when we did this technique, I thought, I need to get in contact with my wife <laughs> so that I can get some chromosomes. Do you email about it yeah. if you don't talk about yeah. it at home. Well, Dear Dr. Terry. So actually, yeah, that yeah. is what we do. So yeah. in, we have a few projects currently ongoing. There was this particular one about the, the DNA damage, mm. um, but there are also a few others where I really need some modelling expertise and I know you'd be very good at it. Um, and also there are then potentially less issues with authorship down the line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and, and so those kind of topics we do cover by email rather than just, you know, over dinner because they are officially work. Or if you want to separate your work from home, then this is the easiest way to do it. Oh, that's really great. Because one of my questions was going to be, can you image the difference between normal DNA and radiation damage DNA with your magnetic tweezers? Is that what you're talking about when you're overlapping your areas? Or? Um, so this is not magnetic tweezers that I'm using for that particular project is something called super resolution imaging okay so normally when you image uh dna or some other thing that you've labeled in microscopy it's limited in the resolution that you can obtain so the smallest thing that you can see isn't limited normally by some kind of law in physics but people have broken that law recently and they've won the Nobel Mm. prize for it and so we're basically borrowing that technique so we can see uh below the normal limit and then we can actually see the difference between uh native DNA and damaged DNA. So I remember learning about this a little bit in my um, chemistry undergrad. We had to learn about um, like sub light wavelength microscopy. But for our listeners, would you be able to like tell them what that is? Because it is so cool and they can look it up and it, so it's really exciting. The, the way I see it, or one of the main techniques that people use, is you basically, if you want to image something, it's normally limited by something called the uh, kind of the airy function and an airy disk that's produced when you image uh, something that's infinitely small, it'll still have an, a physical extent in the microscopy. But if you do this clever trick where if you use a fluorescent protein that flashes when you image it, yeah, um, you can localise that point to less than the uh, kind of Rayleigh criterion it's called, which is the resolution limit. But So normally you can do like lambda over 2, the wavelengths divided by 2, which is like 200 nanometers. Mm. But with this you can localise that flash of light to about a nanometer. And you just do that lots and you can build up like a pointillism painting wow. uh, of the of the DNA, and you can see, see it in a lot higher resolution. So the, the key to it really is flashy dyes <laughs> and flashy proteins. And once you've got that, it's not too difficult. I mean, it sounds really hard, but also really cool. I was going to say, to me, that's not easy. Okay, wow. Well, yeah, but Sam, you also, like, you're imaging flashes of high-powered light with, with the scanners over it over at St. Thomas's Hospital. So it's actually like not too different. It's a pointillism painting of yeah, in vivo. I had never, ever thought of that before. That's a very good way of putting, putting it. Yeah, Basically do the same job. Basically <laughs> same job. Yeah, <laughs> so now like moving on to talk more about the careers point of view. So a lot of our listeners will probably be interested in careers in academia, especially because when you do like your um, like graduate careers, a lot of people have the goal of, of going into academia. What what do you think is the main difference between being a pre-doc and a post-doc type thing? Like going from 
where I am a PhD student to like postdocing and lecturing and I, I would say for PhD to postdoc the transition is independence you go you're no longer guided necessarily by your uh, supervisor and you're more like here's a project this is kind of what we want to look at there's the lab mm. off you go and they expect you to know stuff because you've done a <laughs> PhD and so you always have I always, when I transfer to a new place, have imposter syndrome. You're like, why on earth did they hire me? I have no idea what I'm doing. Someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and tell me to leave soon because I'm just don't know what I'm doing. So that, that that's the transition from being an expert in your PhD and being guided heavily to feeling like not an expert and uh, kind of guiding yourself. Yeah, I have to say the same. So I, I think we've both done several postdocs yeah. now. Um, and for each one, the first like four or five months are ones of adapting and going, oh my goodness me, what is this project? It's completely different to anything I've ever done before, because that's kind of the point is to learn new skills. Um, this is never going to work. And then by the end of the postdoc, again, you're back at that level of experts and then you jump into the next project. So you end up learning and this is a skill that you learn during your PhD how to adapt and how to find out things and work with people who know more than you do Mm. and you touched on it a little bit and then when you were saying how you've done like a few postdocs obviously if you met each other during your PhD that can't have all been you got the same postdocs at the same institution so like how much of that challenge has like shaped your relationship today and your relationship with academia as like a triangle, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, uh, that that actually has been incredibly tricky throughout the years. So post-PhD, PhD times were wonderful mm. um, because we were in one place for three or four years and it was great. Um, then Dan got a fellowship, which was great, to go to the US. Um, so off he went and I said I would join. I had um, real problems trying to find a job in the US. I tried for um, many a month. And it just didn't work out. And then I got offered a job at the University of Oxford and I couldn't possibly decline because it was in a great group um, in exactly the research area that I wish to continue in. So we ended up doing two years apart then, um, mostly down to me following my career. The important thing there was that we limited it to two years. Mm-hmm. We said after two years, that's it. Um, we are then going to make sure that we get back together again um, in the same location um, because long distance is hard. So there was always that that barrier there. Expensive as well. It was expensive. We used to try to see each other every three, four months. And so international flights to Seattle from the UK were expensive. They were. And also... (laughs) Still are. Still are. (laughs) Uh, And also one of us would be working whilst the other one... Uh, would be on holiday so it'd be pretty tricky yeah and you don't want to spend all your holidays like writing papers just because you're in a different country and not spending any quality time so then we ended up both getting jobs in the Netherlands Dan got his job first again um, and then I found my job in Nijmegen which was an amazing group to work in they are excellent at um, using radioactivity for imaging but uh, they were on other in other parts of the Netherlands so we lived in the middle and Mm. commuted an hour and a half each one way and then again you found the next job first in London Um, and I was looking for academic positions 
I found one in the north um, of the UK that hasn't worked out because I'm here at King's, uh, which is great. Um, so the last few years, I'd say, have been a bit more tricky where we've both been looking for independent academic positions mm. and I have been successful in getting one. And unfortunately, Dan is still looking. Yeah, because that really puts restrictions when when you're like, you've obviously made the decision to um, to be in the same city, which is like fantastic. Yeah. But actually, that creates like a problem. Like, as you said in your, e- you said in an email to me, you mentioned the two body problem. Yeah, yeah. And could you tell us a little bit more about actually what that means? So I, I don't know if anyone else calls it the two body problem. Yeah, they do, I, they do. I, I, I looked it up because <laughs> I guess it's more of a physicist thing because a three body problem is a notoriously <laughs> hard problem, and so I think we call it the two body problem for that. See, it is. It's a hard problem in physics. I'd like to explain the two no. body. <laughs> that can stay as an inside joke for physicists. <laughs> See, the two-body problem is quite easy, really. It's trying to find a job that suits both of your careers um, where you can live together. And that yeah. is incredibly difficult to find, especially in academia. Has having children changed this whole balance? Are you like relearning the entire balance? Or or the, have the principles that you set up been like very, not princ- like not rigid principles, but have, have the boundaries that you've set up been really useful? I have to say, since having child number one, the boundaries have become clearer. Mm. Um, so before child number one, this might be too personal, but we were sitting on the couch a lot watching a lot of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to turn your brain off. <laughs> yeah. Try, yeah. Not, not, not going out very much. Like we've, we've done all that stuff and we're just you sitting should, on the yeah. sofa. So we said, well, this can't be it. So let's have a family. <laughs> <laughs> we used to think we were busy. And then it turned, like, it turns out we really weren't Just very busy. Just a fraction of it. <laughs> um, but since having child number one, it has become clearer because you have to, you have to be home at a certain time to pick up the little one. If you want to see the little one and spend any time with them before bed, then, um, you know, a bit of playing, a bit of cooking together, watching telly, whatever it might be then you have to leave work at a certain time and you don't have time to check your emails and write until they're back in bed. Mm. And to be honest, by the time the little one's back in bed, I'm shattered. Um, and so I take a few hours for myself and then go to bed myself and then that's it, start the next day. Mm. So you learn to rebalance what you do at work in the shortest time possible and also delegate. Prioritise as well prioritize anything that's not needed to be done kind of throw it away don't Mm. do it just do the things that are important i also recently learned about this principle of shiny balls um this was by (laughs) (laughs) this was by uh hugh cairns he was absolutely amazing and he basically had a plastic tube um and filled it with balls you know this is one ball that represents your work this is another ball that represents sleep this is another one that represents fun or hobbies or exercise whenever the last time was that I did that and then he's like oh and it's full and it's full to bursting and because that's how you fill your time and now with a shiny ball principle you basically have this other shiny ball that you get told oh this will be really good for your career why don't you just do this you need it um go for it And actually you realise with this metaphor and trying to squeeze this ball into the tube that Mm. it doesn't fit and something else has to give. And since having seen that, it's made me rethink things quite a bit and say no to a lot more things. Yeah, the importance of saying no. 
I think we could all use a, a leaf out from that book, to be honest. And a lot of people try and pass things on to you that they could just do themselves if it was that shiny. That's a great point. The, the, the art of delegation, although as a PhD student, we don't recommend uh, that to our listeners. <laughs> Delegate things. <laughs> no, I guess, I guess not. Well, and unless it fits really well into somebody else's project and you can help out with other aspects of their project that fit you really well. Mm. Sometimes working as a team gets you um, a lot more results, a lot quicker, higher quality, and with less actual work and time. Mm. And so how how do you deal with all the travelling that you guys must have to do now Now you have a family? In terms of conferences and things like that, or yeah. just commuting, I suppose. Oh, no, yeah, conferences. But commuting, if that's relevant. Yeah. Well, commuting's worked out reasonably well just by luck basically because yeah. we live somewhere where if trains go wrong there's another two options to get home yeah there's always a panic for oh yeah I never thought about like what do you do if you can't neither of you can get home so also if you're five minutes late picking them up they say they'll report you to social services <laughs> i think it's an empty threat empty threat surely let's test no let's not test it um <laughs> conferences we just negotiate well in advance with each other mm. and then if needed ring in a grandparent which is for us a little bit it's not too bad like mm. some are living in the north of the country and some living in Europe so uh, yeah, it depends on what we have to do yeah. so, you, so you basically plan in advance and, and find ways around it yeah we're never both away at the same time for conferences no you will have to choose which one is probably best for the other person yeah and then um, if they're of equal importance, well, that hasn't really happened yet. I, I guess, doubt has it, it would happen. <laughs> like, like the conferences overlapping is slim. Also, as a postdoc and an academic, you can go to conferences ad nauseum. They're all throughout the year, and they're not just conferences, they're symposia, uh, general networking, whatever else. So you could be travelling the whole year if you chose to, um, if you had the money to. But I think the the reason you go to conferences is to talk to people rather than... Mm. What's difficult, I think, with having a kid now is the inherent kind of expectation of networking after work hours, which yeah. you miss out on. So, yeah. like, if there's... Or let's... After this seminar's happened, we'll all go for beers or have um, coffee afterwards or go for dinner or whatever. You know, I, I can't. I've got to go... And, I want to go and pick up my son so I can put him into bed, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where you miss out on, on the networking. But I don't know whether, I don't know if it's really a big effect on your career necessarily. I think long-term perhaps, in the short term, not so much. But long-term, like your children will grow up and you might not have to be there quite so early. Yeah, it depends on so, how yeah, many you end up change. having. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, let's not, get, let's not go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we haven't really t- touched much on um, why there are currently fewer female uh, lecturers and profs in the UK and so directed at both of you why do you think so few women do it this is a really tricky one I think um, I think there are probably quite a number of reasons that come into play for why there aren't so many female academics I think the the first one is obviously um, having people qualified to the level where they could become an academic um, well, I think there's enough women that reach that point they say it's more of a leaky pipeline so they mm. can get the pipeline to the postdoc, postdoc. level but the, it leaks when you go from postdoc to independent position yeah 
Um, a, a big reason might be that um, a lot of the postdoc contracts have shortened over the years. So when I was doing a PhD, they were still about, about five years long. And as soon as I went into postdocing, they shortened to about two years. And so that means that you have no stability. So you go from a two-year contract to a two-year contract, maybe with an extra year's extension here and there. And people who are scientists uh, are generally quite logical and like things that just so and in place. And so it's usually the same in their lives. They, you know, people would like to have that house. They would like to have stability. They would like to know where they're going to be for the next 10 years. And that just isn't possible when you're doing a PhD and then a postdoc. Um, yeah, and you see all your friends like moving on and, and doing all those life steps and it's actually harder because you have yeah. that to compare yourself against, which maybe you shouldn't, but you do anyway. <laughs> yeah, so you inevitably do. I mean, we're the, we're the last amongst our friends to have a family who didn't go to university. But on the other hand, we're one of the first of those who did go to university. Now, I'm going to be honest, I'm 34 now. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and um and we started having children in early 30s and that's relatively late but the only reason that we started then is because that's when I had my first permanent position where I knew where I was going to be for the next 2 3 years. Yeah. Now, now longer. And I was lucky because I got to join uh, the Crick which was then Cancer Research UK. Um, uh, LRI, but they gave me like a four-year contract with a possibility oh, yeah. of two-year extension, which for a postdoc is amazing. Like, so you can actually maybe think about planning. And we'd, yeah. we're in the same city, and so we're like, oh, okay, so we can settle down. In hindsight, maybe we should have just kind of got on with life anyway. If you know what I mean. That would be my advice to anybody is to start earlier. Life is never going to be perfect. You're never going to be in a state of um, of stability, even if you have a permanent job. So try and get on with life earlier and try and get that work-life balance in earlier before you're forced to because you have children. Yeah. Enjoy, enjoy it more. Put less stress on yourself. So on that vein, would you tell your younger selves to carry on and keep going in academia or have you been tempted by industry like what do you think so I was tempted by industry at one point um and my route into industry was doing a an industry funded postdoc at an academic institution um and I found out that actually that lifestyle or that way of working um was perhaps too rigid for me and didn't quite sit well with how I like to do my research. So that route for me is is out, I believe. Um, who knows what the future will bring? Um, in terms of continuing in academia, honestly, I was very naive as a PhD student and I thought that the academic route, if you worked hard enough, you would get there Um and people would recognise your talent and it all would be well. But in actual fact, an awful lot of academia seems to be a fair bit of luck, a lot of networking um, on top of being a good scientist. And I would also um, then mention, obviously, like public engagement awards, which are like fantastic. 
don't seem to be recognized yet on the same level as academic grants, which is a massive shame because it's actually doing like a lot more good for the world to have more people know about our research. So that's a very interesting comment. It's one I've thought about a lot. Um, Public engagement is a really interesting area where we we do have this um, need to go out into the public and chat about our work and get feedback and just discuss things um, at a peer level with people that aren't scientists. Um, And, and everybody, there is nobody in academia that will tell you that public engagement isn't important. Um, However, it isn't recognized officially as it should yet. It probably will see a huge surge in the next decade in its importance. And um, you'll likely see more academic positions in public engagement and this is kind of where we're trying to change things within the Centre of Medical Engineering here at King's um, by having a group of ambassadors for public engagement and applying for grants that will hopefully make um, make that route and that uh, impact of public engagement more worthwhile for the individual carrying it out. Because at the minute, it is still very much seen as an extra, a bonus. It, it is changing, I think, because from experience, I can tell you that uh, job applications for permanent positions and fellowships and grants tend to have a public outreach or public engagement element to it to mention that you've done it or you're interested in doing it. Mm. So it is a component of being an academic now, I think. Uh, so it is important. And it, I think, yeah, I think but it's it- becoming more important just in, in general, because to ensure that we have the public's trust in what we do with the money. Yeah. But it doesn't outweigh how much funding you bring in. Yeah. So no. ultimately, universities, as any other business, need funds to stick around and do their job in the long term. So funding will always play a big part. It's a balance. Yeah. Which but obviously, it's shifted towards cash at the moment. um and then so just the last uh just the last question um what is the best and the worst part of each of your jobs like bearing in mind that this is a career special in academia like what would people love about your jobs and what would people find annoying there are two great things about my job one is flexibility in terms of um, being able to work anywhere and everywhere. Now, obviously, if you're in the lab, uh, that's a bit more limited. But nonetheless, you, I'm sure, could still find a day where you write a paper or look at um, writing grants or fellowships or, or reading papers in a coffee shop somewhere. So that that's one great thing. The other great thing, I think, is um, being part of a, a massive team of people and chatting to people from all sorts of different backgrounds. So what I particularly like is that my, my days are incredibly varied and I know that's so cliched, um, but nonetheless it's cliched because it's true and it's an easy one to come up with. Um, we talking to PhD students, master students, inspiring them, um, having them come back to me and say, Oh, look, I want to do a PhD in your lab. Um, and keep coming back after that is is a great feeling, and knowing that you're changing people's uh, lives along the way is is fantastic. Yeah, for for me, I mean, there's more than 
there's more than just one thing that's like the best thing of being a postdoc, I, I suppose. Um, there's obviously the science, right? So you get to do the science that you want to do. Um, in, in particular, you, you're paid to think, which is quite a privilege. So you can, I can just, I mean, there's a lot of hard graph, but sometimes you can just sit down and think about uh, the world around you and what you're studying in particular and try and understand it to a depth that no one else has tried to understand it. So it's quite a privileged thing to do, to be paid for that. Um, and then, personally, I really enjoy um, mentoring and teaching those uh, around me, uh, whether they be PhD students, colleagues that are at the same level and teaching each other different techniques or undergraduates, just transferring that information and seeing that spark of knowledge in them. That's what I enjoy. That's really great. I also really enjoy bringing people together. So seemingly having two disparate um, interests in science brought together by one common theme. So where you're just chatting with friends and going, actually, I could help you with that. And that's happened to me a number of times over the years, which is why I work as part of so many different types of teams at the minute. Um, and then years later, they'll come back to me and say, I want to write a grant on that. You said we could do this. Let's go do it. And it just happens. It's great. Mm. And would I be correct in saying the worst part would be like grant writing? No, grant writing isn't so bad. If uh, It would be better if the if the percentage of success was higher yeah. but i think the worst the worst thing in some cases is is also the best and that is the flexibility <laughs> yeah yeah so being able to cuz cuz it's not just working in the, at the bench it's thinking things through it's trying to puzzle um through problems and you can do that anywhere and everywhere and that is um that is a big problem because you you could be doing it in the shower which is seen as a positive but that also means that it could very much it very much intrudes in your personal life. Mm. Yeah, you need to take a break. Everyone needs to take a break, otherwise it's just you can do academic stuff continuously, like you say, standing in the shower, falling <laughs> asleep, holding your baby, thinking about things, right? So it's worthwhile taking a break. That's some really wise things, I think, for our, our listeners to mull over. Mm. Well, thank you guys so much for coming and sharing some of your very unique insights into the academic career path for us. Uh, we hope you have a happy, healthy baby very soon. Uh, and we're wishing you all the best. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's all, folks. Thanks for listening. We'd also like to congratulate Dan and Sam, who since recording delivered a healthy baby girl. Next time, we'll be speaking to Olat about her research and the important topic of the student-supervisor relationship. Until next time.